WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Lazowitz. And this week's guest is the writer of the upcoming Lunar Room from Vault Comics, as well as books like IDW's Transformers, Shattered Glass, and Marvel's Champions, Danny Lore. Welcome to the show, Danny. Hey guys, how are you guys doing? Doing fine. Doing great. Uh, so uh, the the first time traditional first time question for first time guests. Uh, what are some of the first comics that you remember reading? Uh, so very first are definitely like the the Sunday comics from uh, the Daily News uh, were really okay. big in my house. Uh, my dad bought the paper every day because he like uh, he worked night shift. So when he came home, he would like pick up the newspaper like the like the early bird. Mm-hmm always read those and then obviously like Sunday was was a, a big deal um you know because you would get the, the full color like larger uh setup um mm-hmm. as well as uh, I had a babysitter who for years even after I was like quote older um she always made sure to wrap all of my presents because she knew I liked comics in the Sunday like color pages oh that's nice so that uh I'd be really careful unwrapping them so that I can like read them. Um, and then in terms of like non-comic strips, um, I was actually in like the children's section of like the public library. And uh, for context, uh, when I was younger, my mom was not big on me reading comics, not cause like, not cause she was like, you know, comics are bad or anything. Like my dad was a big, you know, like a uh, superhero nerd, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was just cause I read them too fast. Like uh, spending money on them or me picking them up even from the library because like I would finish them all in one day. Right. Uh, so um, she was just like for her, like the additional labor of all of that felt like s- such a waste. And then she was worried about me, like, quote reading under level um but it was really just like you finish them all in an hour like uh that kind of thing but I was in the kids section one day and back in the day the original books of magic volumes were in the all ages section the original Mm -hmm. trades for the ongoing I had not read I did not read Neil Gaiman's run until years later but that that original uh, Timothy Hunter ongoing series um, and at the time they'd been like unnumbered so like it was a big jumble I would just get them whenever a volume would come in and kind of piece together what order they were in but like that book really like stayed with me to this day uh, it's one of my all-time favorites like I was actually really pleasantly surprised to as an adult reread it and be really happy that like it held up um, but it was like really really formative to me um, just the the kind of of world building that was there especially since like uh you know elementary school kid from you know like Harlem being exposed like going straight from like you know like there was you know the Garfield and family circles but there was also like I was reading you know like Kathy and stuff like that like I knew what the hell that was talking about um but to go for, <laughs> yeah you know like to go from there to these very like late 80s early 90s British comics Mm -hmm. uh was like multiple levels of like total like world kind of changing and it really stayed with me from there um then I kind of went in and out of comics like I said it was uh 
wasn't really until high school that I like late high school that I could get really back into them. Um, and even that was uh, like my school went uh, to England for a week and Ooh. a comic shop and bought a bunch of comics while I was in London because it was my money. Nice. Uh, so it wasn't even really like uh, till college that I regularly got to read comics. You know, like I, growing up, I had all the trading cards, um, you know, big X-Men fan, all the animated series. Um, and, and I liked the concept of a lot of characters, but I was reading, but I was, ne- was not reading really regularly because I couldn't guarantee kind of like a steady flow of them. Mm-hmm. So when you were, were, were younger and you were reading the, the strips and the Sunday funnies, you know, what were, what were some of your uh, favorites? Uh, Prince Valiant. Uh, I mean, like, I loved all of them. For me, every single one was like, I followed that, like, uh, the same babysitter who uh, wrapped my uh, stuff in comics pages was a big soap opera person, right? Um, And I followed every day's daily news, like, like comics, (laughs) Mm -hmm. as if, you know, like, they were the, um, like, my own soap operas. So, like, they all kind of were a unit to me in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Garfield was hugely uh, a part of my younger life. Like that was one of the ones that I did when it was in the libraries or like if I if I saw it used at a bookshop, my mom like would let me get the Garfields because like those weren't intended to be like heavy reads, you know, like they were all like the strips. Mm-hmm. Um, but like Prince Valiant was big. Um, and I think it's interesting because I didn't necessarily read them read Prince Valiant as much as I read the other strips like but visually it stuck with me mm-hmm. because Valiant was harder for me to read mm-hmm. because I did because like it was uh, a mature more classic um, kind of uh, fantasy so like I read it I definitely didn't understand it like all the time mm-hmm. um, but I like absolutely adored it and uh, Dick Tracy because Daily Daily News was writing Dick Tracy and um, um, Little Orphan Annie when I was growing up mm. and like those ran as serials like you know Garfield was you know like maybe an arc of like two or three days but like those were every week you like read them to find out what happened uh, and so when I got older and like could find like the collection of like the books, I was mm-hmm. super excited. At least I think Little Orphan Annie was running. I know Dick Tracy yeah. was, um, but I'm fairly certain they were both running at the same. They definitely were. My my grandparents would get the to- the not the Times, the Daily News and the Post. You know, mm-hmm. And well, my great aunt Mary got the Post, which tells you a whole lot. And I'll just leave <laughs> that there. Uh, but I remember reading. Dick Tracy and the Lord Annie and Spider-Man, which yes. were all running serialized. Yeah, I think Spider I think Spider-Man either ended a little bit earlier than the other two in terms of serialization or swapped to Sundays only at one point. Because mm-hmm. I remember that not being as regular, but I loved it a lot. Um, my house was very much like my dad got the daily news every day and then almost every paper uh, that was available at the time on Sunday. Um, you know, just every, and it wasn't even, he read the whole thing. He was in it for the sports sections. <laughs> like he, he picked up everyone so that he, like, he, he got the New York times every week. And, you know, like I grabbed, you know, like I grabbed the science section because I like to pretend that I could understand it. I would do that a lot. I did a lot of, uh, 
like I did that with my uh, mom's old fashion magazines, like the big W's and Vogue's. I would sit there and flip through them and like tell myself stories. <laughs> uh, you know, like that was like a game for myself, try to tell a connecting story with each picture as you went through the magazine all the way to the end. I would just sit there for hours and do it, right? Um, and I kind of like with the science section, like I liked the feeling of sitting there and, and acting as if I could understand it. Uh, I spent a lot of time playing low, uh, pretending to be Lois Lane as a kid. Um, my first Halloween costume I ever picked for myself was the movie version, actually. Full floral vest, long skirt, okay. uh, you know, like uh, a wig so that like my hair was like hers. But that was the first costume I ever picked for myself. Um, just because like that was a big thing for me. And like, I think some of that was also the fact that like the newspaper represented like my dad's rituals growing up. So like the newspaper became a big thing because it was the thing my dad did. It was the thing that one of my uh, grandfathers, you know, like, or my great, one of my great grandfathers, I remember sitting, you know, next to him while he read the paper. And so those were big things, but the thing I understood was the comics, you know, everything else above my head, but the comic section, I could sit there and read and feel like I was like my dad. Uh, um, and so like that became like a love of Lois Lane growing up because those like those movies were super formative. Uh, the Michael Keaton Batman, um, I did in fact force all my kindergarten class to regularly uh, recreate. We, we did we did a lot of instead of straight up pretend we would recreate scenes from our favorite movies. And we had a kitchen set in like the little play area of our kindergarten class. And so we would sit there and more than one you know like afab or girl like playing at the time the way that we were fair was that someone played selena kyle before and then you would lay on the floor and then you would swap like you would get up go to the side like you were the audience and then whoever was playing catwoman that day would swap in um that's we were a very strange group of children but like like so like that stuff was just always super important you know like uh you know batman spider-man you know dick tracy like the real classic pulpy stuff also was like huge like i was a huge dick tracy fan uh recently re uh reacquired i have to listen to them um cassette tapes of the old dick tracy's and the shadows oh wow uh audio stuff um because like as a kid I found like a tape of like the shadow like when we were on vacation at one of those little like tourist things and so I would just sit there and listen to it and pretend I was listening to the old radio because I thought I was I played a lot of pretend um a lot of pretend <laughs> but it was always about like comic-y stuff be it like pulpy stuff or be it superheroes mm -hmm. The shadows hold up better than the Dick Tracy's. I, I listen to a lot of old time mm -hmm. radio. I love it. The Dick Tracy's are much more geared for a younger audience. Mm -hmm. Shadows are absolutely delightfully creepy still. Mm -hmm. uh, I just recently discovered and was able to find a couple of episodes. There was a, a radio series for the Golden Age Blue Beetle. Oh. Yeah, Dan Garrett. It, it, it's... I heard a couple episodes and it's like, wow. I mean, it's it's not great, but it's still like, huh, it's a Blue Beetle radio show. Who'd have thunk it? Yeah, I love the old radio stuff. I mean, I'm also a big fan of like the old, like seven, like 60s, 70s horror comics, like is another like big part of my like heart. Like I will 
I will read the shit out of EC, like old EC archives, like over and over, you know, um, Mm -hmm. what they were able to do and what would stay with you after such short stories, you know, um, and how they leaned into the camp. That's also why I like the radio shows, you know. Um, I really appreciate stories dedicated to the drama and the camp and they don't try to kind of undersell those, you know, like, yeah, there are some of the, some of like the older stuff was intentionally like a little dorky, a little nerdy, but then there's also stuff that was like, no, we are, we are committing to the camp not because we think it's parody, but because this is how you tell a story in, in the radio format, in the comic format. Uh, and, and I love that stuff. Uh, a lot of times my favorite comics to this day kind of that. That's great. So uh, we're going to be bouncing around a few different books today, but I figure mm-hmm. let's start with uh, Lunar Room, uh, your upcoming series from Vault with artist uh, Georgia Esposito. Uh, Matt, since you are the uh, werewolf-loving half of us, I will give you the honors of reading the solicit text for the listeners. Cynthia Sinbreaker used to be a lot of things. A werewolf, a mob enforcer for a powerful mage, a name feared on every street of Solar City. But now, she's forcibly retired from all those things, trying to get over her past job and past loves. Nak Zero is a mage with their own agenda. And right now, item number one is to hire some protection. Normally, Sin wouldn't look twice, but Zero may have the key to getting back the most important thing she ever lost, herself. Matt, you rehearsed that. (laughs) A little bit. (laughs) It's real good. (laughs) So, uh, Danny, what is the origin of this uh, project? Um... It kind of comes from a few different places. Um... I think that a lot of my work up until very recently in comics, um, you know, and I, I love, I love all of my projects, but a lot of them have been really clean, clear cut into like, especially like when you compare like say Lunar Room's kind of setup to Queen of Bad Dreams, the first thing I did with uh, Vault. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a story that does not really deal with gray areas because it, was uh, a series of metaphors that I think could get really harmful if you tried to do them in gray areas, right? Uh, Talking about like like women's agency, the agency of brown women and queer women, like that kind of stuff. Um, And, you know, and then I do a lot of say the young superheroes or even like some of the closer to horror stuff I've done is like, still it's, it's Steve Rogers, right. You know? Um, (laughs) And it's funny because as a writer, uh, my roots are in horror. Um, Like my pro shorts that have been published are almost all horror. Um, You know, like uh, up until this point, I actually hadn't done a werewolf story in comics uh, at all. and I just really wanted to also do, so like when I was talking to Adrian when, uh, about what kind of project I wanted to do next, there was really just, I wanted to do something messier. Uh, and I wanted to do something, there's such a big world to Queen of Bad Dreams, but the story itself is not over the top. I wanted to be over the top, you know, like you see the characters' names, like, you know, Sinbreaker, Zack Zero, you know, like I wanted to be just, as 
that's kind of like buck wild as like I think that like my imagination gets and I wanted to do it with Adrian in particular because he is an editor that really kind of understands when I'm holding like he can tell on the page when I'm holding back versus when uh, I'm throwing it all out there and he's really good at calling me out on holding back. Um, mm -hmm. So I knew I wanted to do that. Um, and then in addition, uh, I wanna say like even two years before we were even talking about that, I was at, uh, it was it was a convention that Vault was at. I wanna say New York Comic Con, but I could be wrong. Um, and I was talking to Tim Daniels and it was actually the first time I got to meet that crew in person. Um, and we were talking and initially we had a conversation about how why I don't tell werewolf stories in comic form, even though like it's my absolute favorite, you know, uh, thing to throw in a story. And it was because for me, a lot of times, werewolves are very internal writing. Like I tend not to write them as like, you know, the big glooming beast. I tend to write them as the protagonist, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times I use metaphors of like gender or like anxiety in particular for the past few years, uh, you know, talking about the fear of change and the feeling of being overwhelmed by the change is like uh, an anxiety metaphor. Um, and for me, that was not something that I wanted to uh, deal with and as a visual medium, you know, like I'm very, I try to be very careful about which stories I decide are prose and which are uh, comic, right? Mm -hmm. I wanna make sure that I'm telling the one that is best for that medium. And so often those stories for me, like even when you look at like the old school Marvel uh, Werewolf by Nights that I love, like how much of that work is done in, in the captions, right? And I love those. Uh, I, could, I could probably pull a, a pretty mean imitation of that uh, narrative style if someone uh, wanted me to, but that's, you have to be very particular if you're gonna do that uh, mm -hmm. in a modern comic. Uh, I don't wanna say you can't because I freaking wanna do it, but like you can't really just throw that out there, right? That's unfair to the, you know, like to the art team, right? And so I spent a lot of time thinking about what a visual werewolf story would look like from me, right? Because I didn't necessarily want werewolf as big, bad, scary thing in the distance. Um, and from that, uh, I started looking at, I started like putting together the pieces for Lunar Room. Um, you know, a lot of it is me coming into my voice more and more um, and loving the work that I'm doing at other companies. But, you know, like admittedly for the uh, past few series, uh, except for like Transformers, I've been doing a lot of like say teen voices, that kind of thing. And I wanted to do something that was uh, messy and adult. And I was kind of like, I don't so much want good guys and bad guys as I want assholes and bad guys, <laughs> um, you know? And so that kind of like inspired Sin um, and she's inspired a lot by like, uh, Elliot Spencer from Leverage um, and uh, a couple of my favorite wrestlers, including like Shayna Baszler and just kind of throwing them all in a mixed pot um, and, and being like, this is the kind of story I want to tell with her. Um, and then just making a world that's just really wild, you know, like uh, talking with Adrian and him encouraging me not just to do like a modern 
magical noir, but like also throwing in sci-fi tech in there. And, you know, all of those three things that I love so very much kind of all mixing in and making them work in a story because they're at odds um, was really appealing to me. Uh, as, as somebody who has, has thought a lot about, you know, werewolves and, and media, uh, you know, how much input or notes did you have when it came to, uh, you know, Georgia's uh, designs or, you know, I, I, you know, thoughts about the transformation sequence, stuff like that? So Geo and I and like the whole team, like uh, talk about art concepts a lot. Um, but I tend to be of the belief that unless that like for creature design, I like being like, I trust the artist that I'm with. And part of that is because I am not an artist. They are there because they do that better than I could ever imagine. Uh, so Geo often took the lead in that sort of thing. And then like, we all like, you know, commented and like tweaked together. Um, what I tended to do was more um, when I designed like the concepts and the bios for the characters uh, doing a, you know, X meets X sort of person. Mm -hmm. um, and then for a couple of characters in this, I had actual like references of knowing and then knowing what they look like and knowing their style and then designing for them is a completely different thing. Um, and for all of that, like it was very Geo takes the lead and then we kind of, you know, play off of that. I think a lot of my contributions at that stage were like her presenting three or four different designs. And then I just took, you know, like my Apple pen and like circled parts of them and made arrows and was like, let's do this and this part, or does this work if with this, or is it too like messy? Um, you know, that kind of thing. And then giving like an inspiration for the different characters because uh, like, as you get into the world, you will see there's a lot of brutally different aesthetics, like the different groups of people, uh, you know, rock very different styles and uh, energies with them. And so that was really fun, you know, like there's a character that, uh, we that uh hasn't been shown yet that I was, that has both like a really you know normal modern look and then also a full-blown like bizarre fantasy look you know like that kind of stuff uh and that literally came out of like geo just giving us one of those designs and us being like well i guess he's i guess that's that's what he is now um you know and I like playing off of artists like it's so much fun um if i didn't want to do that I, I have my pros, like when I don't want that. Um, but, you know, I work in a team because the team is going to make it better. So like, it's like a um, queen of bad dreams. Uh, the big monster that you get towards the end that Jordan becomes, uh, that was entirely Jordy. Uh, in fact, uh, getting that initial splash page changed the end. Um, because I was very loose. I think it was like closer to like a tentacle monster when I described it, you know, like what I was pulling off of. Um, and then Jordy like just messaged me the picture one day and was like, like, I just had this image of like a lion mixed with like the shrimp creature. And it was so cool that I was like, this 
creature can't just be in this issue. And so that's how, and that actually worked out really well because then once we had that, we were like, oh, this is a really smooth exit for them at the end of the series if we keep this monster in, right? Um, and I love working like that, you know, like I don't, you know, like I love seeing a design and then just being like, cool, did you enjoy drawing that? Is it gonna be a pain in the ass? No, then I'm gonna, I, I wanna see more of it. Let's like do more. Uh, what are some of your touch points for the great werewolf stories? Oh boy. Um, got a bunch of classics like uh, a Hounds of Baskerville, uh, arguably what arguable, whether or not it's a werewolf story, but I would maintain that the, the voice and energy of it is a werewolf story, even though it's in fact a hellhounds story question mark. Um, uh, big American Werewolf in London fan. Um, I've lost track of how many times I've watched like the special uh, features on like the transformation scene. Um, yeah. I actually really love the dorky one too. I'm kind of obsessed with American Werewolf in Paris and not just, <laughs> and not just because Mouth by Bush is on the soundtrack, which is like a perfect song, but like it is corny as hell, but like some of the visuals are real good like it's it's not a great movie but uh i love uh transformation wise not movie wise i'm big on van helsing and underworld um uh van helsing is a mess in general um and they cheated me out of some of that werewolfness that they promised but i'll, I'll forgive them because that that transformation is just so good it's it's like beautiful um i like both versions of uh being human both the UK and the US ones. Um, shout out to the best thing BBC Sherlock ever did was for the Hounds of Baskerville uh, ver uh, episode. They had the guy who played the werewolf yep. as the client. So he tells this amazing uh, traumatized monologue at the beginning about his vision. And I was like, oh, that's so good. Because if you know being human, you understand why this is doubly amazing. Um, for books, uh, Man, I love so many. Um, Stephen Graham Jones's Mongrels is really good. Um, um, uh, Indra's uh, Devourers is one of my favorite books of all time. Um, it's usually, uh, it is mostly, uh, it is, I usually pair it for people that if they liked these Savage Shores, they have to read Devourers. It basically does something which is wild because like these are two metaphors that I've not seen really used anywhere else, but it does something similar where werewolves are a metaphor for British colonialism. Um, and it does a kind of that Frankenstein uh, enveloping story within story where the first narrator uh, is approached by this man who claims that he is a half werewolf uh, to translate old papers. And the papers are from supposedly this character's father and mother. Um, it is a really rough story. Um, the, uh, the father being like the representation of British colonialism and what happens to the mother. And um, even though like when you're, when he's initially reading uh, the main character is like, uh, this is impossible because of the timelines, right? Like uh, very kind of like 
oldest, you know, like very much, you know, mythos and Highlander type timelines uh, for those characters. But it tells this really br brutal and beautiful story uh, about colonialism um, while the main character becomes not just more fascinated with the stories uh, that are being translated, but the half werewolf. Um, and, you know, it has uh, an underpinning of uh, themes about gender and queerness as well. Um, it's probably one of my favorite werewolf stories, hands down, um, ever. Uh, and I mean, any of the old comics with werewolves in it, you know, Werewolf by Night, uh, every so often I pull out, I have that big Omnibuy <laughs> from Marvel. Um, and I don't know, I just, for me, it is very, uh, I've been teased for this in the past that every story I like and every story that I write, even if there's no werewolves in it, is a werewolf story in some way. Um, you know, the found family dynamics as pack dynamics. Uh, I've always had an affinity for writing about uh, toxic masculinity in particular, mm -hmm. uh, which lends itself to like kind of like the werewolf scenario. Uh, back when I was uh, a fan fiction writing nerd, uh, everyone knew my favorite character because I inevitably wrote a werewolf AU for them in their universe where they became a werewolf. Uh, that was like literally my thing. Um, but like, I just, I like thinking about the dual nature of it. Um, and I like thinking about what the different metaphors can and will be. So I love, I love even the werewolf stories that I really hate for the most part, you know? Um, even the ones that are really messy. Um, I think there are a lot of really bad readings of Howling. Um, I love that, you know, I love the book, but like it is to have a really horrendous read of that book uh, and a horrendous interpretation of what it's talking about, right? Um, uh, you know, like I love werewolf stories, but I, tend to have an issue with like the degree of sexualization that happens in them you know but like I still love exploring those stories and what they mean and why those creators felt the need to tell that that specific werewolf story so uh I, I I'm curious because you mentioned uh you know in in your your fanfic writing whoever your favorite character was ultimately had a a, a werewolf story uh pulling on another thread from earlier uh who is the werewolf in your uh leverage headcanon elliot that's <laughs> barely even a, but that's barely like think about elliot elliot funk yeah like if you think of the tap out job the tap out job is a story about a lone wolf who has found a non-werewolf pack that's like his the Damien Moreau stories, the, all of his stories is, is very traditionally werewolf story. Um, you know, the way that he interacts with, with both those he loves and those he hates and the way that he's scared of his effect on the people that he loves around them, you know, um, and what it means to open up to them because is he putting them in, in danger for opening up to them? Um, even in the way that... Uh, that, that, you know, when you got to like season five and like they started really writing that the, you know, the implied and then eventually, you know, 
confirmed on Twitter um, him, Parker, and Hardison relationship that you saw how it worked as like a, a pack dynamic as well, as opposed to, you know, like the straight up traditional romance, right? Um, and there's really no question for me that if I was to just pick one, it would be him and then Parker second, probably. Okay. Uh, so it, it's, you, you mentioned the, the transformation sequence in Van Helsing, and I'm calling back to that because uh, our, our regular uh, Twitter question asker, uh, Asma Fangirl, happened to bring that up as her uh, favorite trans werewolf transformation sequence in media when we were talking earlier today. It's so good. Like, here's the thing. So my favorites are probably American Werewolf in London because mm -hmm. the practical effects on that are just absolutely stunning. And like a really good magician's trick, knowing, like watching Rick Baker's work, like on the documentaries and then rewatching it again, it's still astounding. You still don't see how he does the trick, you know, when rewatching. And for a movie of that age, it's really impressive, right? Um, but then on top of that, like, I think Underworld does a beautiful transformation. They muddy up their uh, mythology as it goes on. But mm -hmm. my goodness, especially that first movie, like when he, when he pushes the bullets out of himself and like they're running on the ceilings, um, there's a lot of um, connection between the Van Helsing transformations and the Underworld ones though, stylistically. But like those in terms of like CG, like at all in transformation, I think that those two go like above and beyond. Um, I will give a shout out for style of werewolf to dog soldiers, but doesn't count for transformation. transformation. Um, love, love dog soldiers. Uh, it's really great. I don't get to watch it very often because my wife hates horror and can't even handle American werewolf in London. So I don't ever get to watch dog soldiers, but that movie is so good. Um, and every so often I remember it stars the guy who starred in Rome. Um, but, uh, Van Helsing's werewolf section was so good. Like it almost made the other parts of the movie more frustrating because it did the thing, um, weirdly enough, G.I. Joe does this as well, where they set up the coolest pr uh, premise in both movies. Like, because in the first G.I. Joe movie, they promise you that Duke is going to get mind controlled and get the serum and then he, the venom, and then he's going to fight all of them. And then they punked out on it. Like, you don't get to see him. And I was like, okay, that makes perfect sense. Because I'm watching this movie and I'm like, I don't understand why he would, why he's being set up to be the lead. He's not particularly different than the rest of them. But oh, if he gets the venom and becomes basically a super soldier, then I see why he would be the lead. But then they suddenly have love break the mind control and then it never happens and they pew pew like Star Wars underwater. <laughs> I will never forget that movie. Look, I was like, cause the thing is I was sold on it cause I was not expecting brilliance in that first mm -hmm. movie at all. So I'm like, cool, it's good. You know, like it's a popcorn movie. That's all I wanted. And then they get this really cool mind control moment thing where I'm like, oh, he's gonna, they're all gonna have to fight him. That's gonna be dope. And then nope. And Van Helsing does that a bit with its werewolf stuff where it suddenly sets up these structures in, in the middle of Van Helsing that even though he gets to fight as a werewolf it's never really seen through. Mm -hmm. And it like, it frustrates me because I was like, I see the movie that would have been amazing, right? Um, especially since like Hugh Jackman was great. Like he was just clearly having so much fun and it was like the right kind of campy, but like 
campy still has to have a, a, a script that like I, I want to commit to and mm-hmm. like it it kind of fumbled the ball uh to me Van Helsing felt like two or three scripts that they cherry picked pieces from and jammed them together into one movie. Yes, and- it's I was uh, I think I once thought of it like, do you remember when we got the big omnibuy of Dylan Dog stuff? Sure. I have it, it on my shelf. Yes, uh, I'm so jealous. I sh- I I didn't buy it when it came out because I did not think it was going to be such a short run and I I regret it cuz that book was amazing and I just it had that vibe of trying to tell a chunk of each of like, as if you took that and tried to tell every story in that omnibuy in mm-hmm. one movie. Uh, and like Van Helsing is not the kind of character that the audience was already committed to enough to tell that story. Mm-hmm. You know, like you can do that. Like, I mean, let's look at it. Like Jeff Loeb, some his best Batman work was essentially doing a lot of that, like Long Halloween and stuff, where he basically had like that dope checklist of villains, and we're just gonna pile them on top of each other. And he did that in pretty much that entire Dark Victory, all of those books. But it was good, and he was able to juggle them because you don't have to do as much with each character because the audience is already committed to every single one. You know, I know Batman, so you don't need to list everything. You show me Poison Ivy on a page, you know, in like a beautiful splash page, and I understand a lot of things about what's about to happen with this scene, right? But you can't do that with Van Helsing because you're, this is not a version of Van Helsing that exists anywhere else. And you introduced Dracula in the first movie with the character, and you're, you're, blowing the culmination of it dracula's the nemesis you should be building towards dracula i almost wish they had done um so another one of those things that i adore even though a lot of people didn't like it when it came out although uh a lot of people are giving it its props now that uh short-lived uh one game uh devil may cry remake Mm -hmm. i actually really love that for various reasons um but one of the things i love is that virgil doesn't become virgil to the very end um, and you are sitting there watching it and I'm just like, imagine Van, like the Van Helsing movie, if Dracula had been an ally or something throughout the whole thing, or you build up to the disco- to either the discovery of ally as Dracula or Dracula becoming the villain Dracula, you know? Um, and it was just like, it would have been a little more cohesive and it would have uh, felt a little less like, well, you clearly want to do a sequel. I feel the weight of the sequel, but you, what are you going to do? Like mm-hmm. you've, you've already, who are we going to care about Van Helsing of all people fighting more than Dracula, right? Like, it's not like he's another random hunter. Like we care about him fighting Dracula. It's funny. You mentioned the, the Jeff Lowe Batman stuff. That's one of the reasons long Halloween works because you know what Two-Face, that Harvey Dent is going to become Two-Face and mm-hmm. you're watching the whole story as he makes that arc. And it that, hurts. It hurt, Right. It absolutely hurts because you see him as this sort of gen, generally noble but kind of broken guy who completely breaks. And you, and you keep and it, it puts you into Batman's shoes, right, to a certain extent, because you get the stress of would any of these panels in any of these moments, could it have been changed, right? Um, one of the best, uh, 
not painful ways I've seen that happen is I'm a big uh, fan of the Yakuza video games. Uh, and they did an amazing prequel, Yakuza Zero, which takes place in the 80s. Um, and it's two uh, protagonists. It's Kiryu, the main protagonist for the whole series, and then Majima, uh, his big rival uh, for the whole series, who's like a giant fan favorite, right? Uh, but it's before Majima is Majima, capital M, right? Like he just lost, he, he just lost his eye and he's like in, like he's basically in a lot of trouble, right? But the first time you see him, he is actually stuck as a host to the Grand Cabaret for uh, the Yakuza, right? And it's this whole scene where he has to be on as host and manager and cannot be rude or mean at all. Whereas the first scene you ever see him in, in the first game, he decides he doesn't, that like, he didn't like how slow one of his men reacted and he took his umbrella and started beating the man like with it, right? And so it's this thing of you're watching this whole scene of him being disrespected by this drunken uh, customer and your whole body tells you even if you haven't seen it, like there's something about the way that it's done and how gracious and how dramatic he, he is. It's actually really interesting. My wife who studied Japanese told me he actually switches modes of speaking in that, uh, in it. So he, he like speaks basically like a butler <laughs> when he's like on the clock and then he switches to like this very like street uh, slang. Uh, so he's like, it's this whole tension that's happening and you go through the whole tutorials where instead of having to throw any punches, you actually just dodge because he's not allowed to touch a customer. Right. But he still shows how badass he is by dodging everything and then like stealing a business card from the dude. Right. Like it's really good. He manages to embarrass the guy without ever breaking character, but your whole brain is braced for him to just eviscerate this dude and you want it too because this guy is like a complete shit heel and just the fact that he's so smooth and so controlled tells you where you are in his story and also how much of a prisoner he is in the city right and I love storytelling like that where um I tend to be really big on like non-chronological storytelling for this reason a lot of my short stories involve some sort of flashback mechanic or something because there's something to me of about the reader or the audience knowing so much more than the person in the, in the scene and being so aware of the future and then what you can do to play with those emotions and then to layer that on with a secret that you didn't tell the audience or you didn't tell the reader in that scene right um that's kind of some of the stuff that that makes writing so much fun and makes reading those long halloween things so much fun you know those like dark victory works as a story because we know the story of Batman and Robin, right? Like, if you did not know anything about Robin, like, and I mean, like, you know, you some, you didn't have any cultural reference for Robin, that story doesn't land the same, like what Jeff Loeb was doing. But like those little moments, you know, in the same way that this is the best day of my life from Jason Todd, like gives me chills thinking about it because you know, you know, like I don't have to see the rest of the rest of the episode or the rest of everything but because i know what lands and you just think of should that day ever have happened and like that's fun you know like uh and i like doing a little bit of that in uh lunar room as well where it's just like a lot of sins sin and zach's problems are going to be their own making 
uh, be it their past or, you know, um, someone not saying it's Zach having a big ass <laughs> mouth in the present, um, you know, like that kind of stuff is just fun for me. Um, you know, that's why I'm a Hellblazer fan. Uh, lots of terrible stuff happens to him, but a lot of the worst stuff is because of him and his past and how it like comes back and bites him, you know? Oh, yeah. John invites most of his problems by thinking he's smarter than everyone. And, you know, you're when you're smarter than 95% of people, you're right 95% of the time. But it's those 5% who come back to fuck you. And then, you know, like, and then with him, it's also great because it's not just being smarter, right? There's a certain element of relying on his reputation, like right and some of that is just sheer luck right like sheer timing like dangerous like dangerous habits when that ends and he realizes that like he almost doomed everyone to hell but then worse than that is that realization that he would definitely do it again and that's what makes that story you know it's not the oh shit i fucked up it's the i don't know if i have the self-control or if i'm a good enough person to not do that again because I don't know if I am, you know, and there are so many moments where he wants to be like, what was it in Paul Jenkins run where you get like the quote, good John, yes. like the golden John, you know, like, and, and he thinks all about like who he could have been. And is, is that, is that person better, you know, and how he sometimes talks himself out of it, out being like, no, like, it's better that I'm me, but on the flip side, part of him like never being fully convinced and that makes such a cool protagonist i love there's nothing uh, it's so funny like especially coming from a fan fiction background where like fandom likes to argue like characters and like oh this character did something terrible or blah 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 and i'm like i love this character they're my favorite and someone's like you know they're awful how could you they're so blah 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 and i was like you're absolutely right they are an idiot they are the smartest moron on this planet. Uh, they have never done anything right in their lives. Uh, and they keep making really, really dumb mistakes. And I love that for them. I love that for me. Uh, I love I love a protagonist that fucks it up for themselves. It's, it's a different ballgame. Um, because then the interactions with antagonists are different the interactions with love interests are different with people who love them right because to love an, a protag like that is to know who they are and like that's another thing that's great about john right like they know people who love him his friends know exactly who they are he is and they hold on for as long as they could can knowing what happens to everyone around him, knowing that he's going to get them in, in into something that will scar them forever. But they love him so much, they're going to stick around until they literally can't anymore. And that's so interesting to see happen over time. You know, that's why Chaz is such a heartbreaking character. Um, it's what that the end of the Ennis run when Kit finally can't take it anymore. It's, oh man, it's. I am such a, a, a Kit John like fanboy. Um, like just that, like Kit and, and Brendan, that whole arc where uh, Brendan, you know, basically, you know, like has the, like where they do the holy water bit. 
and and I'm like John has had moments of peace and love and still none of them feel the same as that moment or ever will you know of just the three of them together and that story so elegantly made you feel that in case you can't tell I really love John Constantine and uh I've never never talked to him talked about him for for days on end before so um yeah no, I, I I yeah no no I, I I'm not one to talk about John for ages <laughs> oh, um it's kind of a thing <laughs> but, but we have so many other things we need to discuss yeah <laughs> Well, uh, let's let's move on uh, to something that's out. Uh, Luna will be out in uh, November. Uh, let's move on to something that's out now. Uh, Transformers Shattered Glass from IDW. So uh, in this one... Talking about characters that have never been wrong in their lives and have never, ever made any mistakes or said anything dumb, ever. <laughs> oh my gosh. I can't believe they're all so blameless and so flawless. And Starscream is just, you know, an angel and has never done anything wrong in his life. <laughs> and, and that is the, the, the crazy thing about this book. So uh, this is the, the story of the ongoing battle between the power-hungry Autobot autocrats and the freedom-fighting Decepticon laborers. Uh, you know, we're working in that, that sort of like almost Star Trek mirrorverse concept with the Transformers. And uh, the first issue centers on a body scrapper who wears the Autobot insignia and attempts to bring in uh, Starscream, uh, hero of the rebellion, for a uh, hefty bounty. Uh, how did this opportunity come together? Um... I was fortunate uh, enough to know my editor, uh, Riley, um, from talking about uh, the Star Wars short, actually, that I did, uh, because that actually started coming together uh, before uh, Transformers did, uh, because comic schedules are weird. Um, Especially nowadays. Yeah. Um, So it was this kind of situation where, you know, um, none of them were used for this, but like, when pitching Star Wars, sometimes you you come up with a long list of things because you never know what's going to be canon or uh, what is possible to do in canon at the time because they have such a long timeline and what doesn't. But sure. what that meant is that I got to be in communication with Riley uh, for uh, a bit longer than you normally would for a short in terms of um, story ideas, you know, having given a few that... Uh, you know, didn't work out, you know, mostly for reasons of, oh, whether or not that uh, works for canon or whether they're using a concept similar somewhere else. Um, and so uh, Riley uh, and and David, um, the senior editor for the Transformers stuff, uh, reached out to me and were like, hey, you know, we kind of like how you think about stories. Do you, do you want to do Shattered Glass? And I was like, what? <laughs> uh, like for me, I always loved Transformers, but it actually only been, I want to say six months before uh, quarantine that I got heavy into them, like in terms of the comic universe rather, because mm-hmm. I had, you know, loved, you know, the toys and uh, the animated series in the past. Um, I had had two friends, um, one of whom I've talked about a lot, Shelly, uh, who's responsible for me as an adult uh, getting back into actually most of the uh, comic series that I've been fortunate enough to write uh, just by sheer coincidence. Um, she brought me back into comics with uh, 
Winter Soldier and Captain America 600 and 601. Like she uh-huh. gifted those to me um, and started down like a whole new kind of creative path for me. Um, and she, she was super into Transformers and then also one of my managers at my comic shop. And I kind of avoided it for a while. Um, and finally I was like, you know what? You guys keep telling me specifically that like these comics are like for me, right? So like, I'm, I'm gonna ask each of you for a recommendation. They did not know each other at all, right? They'd never met. They both recommended Last Stand of the Records. They were like, if you read one Transformer story and it's not even about which one is best, although I still maintain it's like my absolute favorite, but it's about the story that is for you, right? Like just read Last Stand of the Records. So I bought it that day, went home and immediately ended up just like taking panel pictures and texting them and being like, holy shit, right? Because, you know, I've, I've you know, mentioned it before, the things I love talking about, like that kind of like, the wreckers are a fucking werewolf pack, like fight me, they are, <laughs> um, you know, but like also just like the story of trauma, the, the uh, I am a huge fan of, of various forms of media that are really about knowing that you're losing, but not giving up. Like one of my favorite bands of all time, Breaking Benjamin, that's what almost every one of their songs is about, right? Like basically being the Spartans, you know, that will fight in the shade, right? And the records is very much that kind of story and so beautifully written and so painful and uh, talk like overlord talk about like a a villain for like (laughs) my first like kind of like adult entrance into like records. And so I just kind of dove like heart and soul into like phase two comics right. And when I started reading them, I was very much like, man, I love them, but I could not imagine writing it, right? Because like, there's so many things that you have to keep in mind to keep your Transformers from just being humans, you know? Uh, And I was like, I don't know if I can manage that. And then I, and immediately, like, I was like, absolutely, yes. Uh, So is everyone, you know, like on the table, you know, asking questions? and you know getting kind of the summary and it's the only time in my entire career that within an hour of being offered a story I shot back with the full setting pitch like I was like oh is there anything that I need to like specifically hold to right Mm -hmm. and they were like what oh crazy and we'll see you know and I was immediately like, okay, what if it, you know, that's kind of like my opening, you know, like idea for like the, the um, Autobots as warlords, right? Um, and within an hour, I think I had come up with the basic world, world kind of like view. And in less than 48 hours, I had a full five issue pitch. Um, and then, you know, like it got, you know, some notes back from both my editors and Hasbro, but I think it was kind of the fastest story creation I've ever done uh, as a writer. Uh, It was just one of those things that was just so, felt so immediately right, you know, like that I had these tools at the table and they wanted to tell this kind of story. And I mean, Starscream was on the table. So, uh, you know, just that kind of moment of being offered the book was inspiration for the book in a really strong way. You know, like it was just suddenly this was open to me and I just like 
I'm like not literally not exaggerating because I think that I got messaged on a Thursday and like gave them like the loose five, five issue initial summary before the weekend. Like, and it was all so much fun. Like I was, I was like staying up to like come up with ideas, you know, like back when I was a kid with a notebook, you know, or back in my fan fiction days, just like, really just like sitting there like oh I want to do this you know and I'd fallen so in love with so much of phase two that I was just like I want to do these guys justice and I want to make sure that like so there's like a lot of theories about how to do an alternate universe right mm-hmm. and a lot of people some people do like full you know like full over the top like personality changes some don't some just kind of put them in different situations but exactly the same um and I've had a long-standing kind of view of alternate versions of characters as taking time to and I literally sat there and I wrote summaries of what I think are the most important aspects of the normal versions of each that I wanted to use right and then I picked one element of each and I went how to flip it. So Starscream is Starscream. What, what is the biggest thing that I can change about Starscream while he still reads like Starscream? Mm-hmm. And it was just, what if he's completely and utterly loyal to the cause and to Megatron? Like, what if he, that is what he's known for his loyalty, but everything else about him is truly the same, you know? And that changes so much about him, right? But like then you still have, he still can kind of be an ass if you let him talk more than three sentences, you know, like, (laughs) and like really, like if you look back, like, yes, he's done many, many stupid things, right? But like really Starscream is dumb because he's not loyal to literally anything. You know, like he's, he's every, almost every mistake he makes uh, and every disaster he causes is because he doesn't trust anyone around him enough to commit to a thing. Right. Mm -hmm. So no matter, so like he's always going to pull the rug out of some out from someone or not trust someone enough to back his play or something. And if he was loyal to remotely anything, then maybe like any of his plans would ever work, but you know, like he's, he's uh, far too selfish for that to ever happen. Right. So like, think about if he was loyal to Megatron and the two of them knew that they could trust each other what would those two do you know uh and that was just kind of like what I did for for uh Starscream and I don't I I don't think that it is spoiling for Megatron for example to say that uh on the flip side for for him it's what if what if the thing that he was most carrying with him was guilt Mm-hmm. you know like what if that is the thing that weighs on him you know at this point um because one of the things i love about megatron is that he he's very good at convincing himself that anything for the cause is worthwhile that is a defining trait of his he might be upset that people died but then immediately like he frequently starts flipping the language on it. Like they've become immediately a symbol for the cause, right? They've become a motivation for him to continue. And this is like a continual thing for me. So I go, what if Megatron is Megatron? But that shit weighs on him. You know, that he feels responsible for each of his soldiers. 
what does that look like you know and then you know like uh some other stuff with uh some of the later ones uh i'm a big fan of uh making evil gold bug that was pretty fun (laughs) (laughs) that one grabbed me right out of the gate it's like huh okay um i think that um in some ways on its surface the gold bug alterations will feel initially like it's the biggest personality change but it actually isn't it's just that uh changing one aspect of him necessarily changes so much about everything he does more so than uh, i think some of the other characters are more obviously so um which, you know, can happen, you know, some characters, you know, are going to feel like they were only mildly changed, right? But like, it's put them on a whole nother side of a war, whereas other people, you, you know, pull one string and the whole sweater looks different. So uh, in the book, the, the Autobot symbol is the Decepticons purple, and the Decepticon symbol is the Autobots red. Was that tough for for people in the assembly line people in the chain to to keep straight when they're doing passes on the book because i knew i know on first read it, it threw me a couple times so i was like wait a minute I thought, isn't that like you know what i mean like it's one of the things that in in crate it's it's an important piece of insignia and and it's also one of the, the key things that tells us you know this is the world that we're we're dealing with so so I am super lucky in that um, I am basically living the dream on this book. I literally have probably one of the most iconic, you know, leading me on this book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Weedy and John, you know, um, it's funny because it took me a little while to like, you know, like when you know something and then suddenly one day it hits you that um, most of this team had was the team for Last Stand of the Wreckers. Wow. And how many people can say that they got to write their first Transformers book? It was a mm-hmm. five issue series. And it is that legendary of a team. And it is the team that was on a book that changed so much for me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, every every pencil, every layout, every color, every you know letter was just mind blowing. Every every time I got it, you know, I'm sure that I probably got more things confused, and Riley had to correct more things from me than that she ever had to for any other member of this team. Um, mm-hmm. Like I never had to worry about any of that. Um, I don't know if I ever got back a page where I really was like, oh shit, I don't think this works, you know? Um, I was also really fortunate in that, like, man, when you're not used to like bot combat, it's real hard, (laughs) but I had teams here who they knew bot combat and, uh, were comfortable with me um, doing like kind of a, a pseudo Marvel style for the combat as well. 
um, like pretty heavily, you know, like bullet pointed, this is everything I wanted to happen. Uh, there would be points where I would be like, okay, but these two panels have to be on this page, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but I really let them take the lead there. Um, Cause again, like it's a lot of information in a panel when you're dealing with commerce. And it's very easy to, as a writer, overclutter a page when trying to do it or thinking that things are going to be way clearer than they're going to be. Um, but, you know, I would get pages back and it would just, I'd be like, oh, this is beyond what I wrote. Like, it's just so cool. <laughs> like <laughs> everything about working in comics for me is just such a joy and a nerd thing. I'm like that person who literally every time I get like a page from a book I'm working on, like I look at it immediately on my phone and then show my wife and then I have to yell about it. And then I show Vita because I love Vita and Vita has to see what I'm doing. And like Vita is one of the only people that I can show anything to without getting in trouble. Uh, you know, like, uh, but I just love, I love getting pages. And also like another part of my philosophy is Almost always, I am the easiest, my job in, in the script making is the easiest to course correct. Um, unless something really like alters the story I told on uh, in the initial script, mm -hmm. uh, which is incredibly rare. Do, do you, I will fix it before it hits the letterer. You know, mm -hmm. I will cut out half my dialogue because you did so much of this stuff and I will figure it out. Uh, you know, I will change the, the delivery of a line because the way that you landed that expression is so good. You know, like uh, it reminds me uh, in the very first fight scene in champions number six, uh, Luciano did a lot of uh, the, that combat heavy lifting. And one of the things in particular uh, that I always love is that he is actually the cause of my favorite joke in that whole issue. Uh, because I was like, at one point, and I was like, uh, for one page, I was giving descriptions about what I wanted the team to do. But then I was also like, just give me room for Miles to make a joke. I am not clever enough to come up with this joke while not being able to see the combat. In this, in this, because like, I don't have like the through line of them having been in a bunch of conversations yet, but like, give me space. And he did it. And that's where that uh, moment where the guy tries to shock Miles happens. And he's like, did you just zit me? And like, you have like the joke about it, like the getting the sound effect, Miles making that comment and then Nova making a comment about how basically it sounded like they were talking about pimples. And like, none of that was in the original script. Like that, that entire exchange came from Luciano served such a great page and like it was his sound effect. And I went, yep, this is exactly what has to go there. Like it was just uh, Luciano and I spent a lot of time chatting about the uh, work on Champions, like back and forth a lot, um, which is great because I don't have as much experience. I did not have as much experience with uh, team books. <laughs> Um, and so there was a lot of learning on that book. Um, but yeah, I don't think I ever saw a page where I was like, oh, they got these color, like the colors for the Decepticons or Autobots wrong or something like that. Um, even when I like very specifically like had a moment where like, 
because there's a lot of flashbacks in the series uh mm-hmm. you know like there's a lot of being careful to make sure because like dense matter and scarring matters and like you know you know crack chest plates matter and like it was always on point when i got the pages back like always it like I never ended up seeing pages where it was like, oh, you accidentally drew the modern version of him, but this is the flashback version. So like do this. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just so good and like so on point all the time. So uh, we like to start to, to wind down our interviews by uh, asking creators about their pets. Uh, tell us about your cat. Uh you mean uh, Miss Lucinda, the most perfect girl who has never done anything wrong except she spent <laughs> three weeks fighting me over my armchair? That's her thing now. She's okay. always done this because, like, I'm dad. Um, you know, like, uh, back when we got her, I was still working late hours. So it was, and my wife was working from home. So I made a big deal of, of like, I wanted to be the one to feed her because I wasn't going to see her as often. So mm-hmm. I wanted to make sure that we had uh you know like a similar relationship and uh she was actually an older adoptee they think she was about eight years old um and she'd actually only been at the uh shelter for about two weeks so they weren't actually sure about anything about her they they were like she's been really chill and a great personality but we don't know at anything what's going to happen right and it was funny because my wife was not a cat person she was 100% a dog person. I'm just an animal person. Um, and, but I'm like, we have a one bedroom apartment um, and I'm going to end up being the one who has to like walk the dog. And I can't do that right now, right? Mm-hmm. But I know that with our schedules and you not wanting to be home alone all day, that like a cat would be way more manageable. And she swore she hated cats. And I went, I know that's because you are a cat. Like, you notice how like people (laughs) with cat personalities hate cats, like at first, and then like they meet, they find that cat and they're like, oh, okay. Um, But her first cat was not actually Lucy, but we went to a pet shop and there was this beautiful cat. I want to say that like, her name was like Jenny or something, who's the sweetest like cat. She had three legs, but like she very energetically, whenever we walk past her, would like come up and start like asking for attention, like hmm. very energetic. And my wife had fallen in love with her, but I was like, unfortunately, because it would be your first cat, like we were not uh, set up to take care of her. Mm-hmm. Um, she did about a year later. Uh, email uh that adoption company and that cat was in fact adopted and had a very great home they even sent a picture of the cat in the home um which was very very sweet uh because they did not have to do that um but she had been taught we'd been talking and i finally convinced her uh and but then she was still like you know kind of hesitant i went all right let's go today what well i have the money right now for the adoption i can cover the whole thing you know and that doesn't always happen so let's let's do it uh we can we can look uh and then if you know like we'll get you know like your homie to like drive us back and forth if need be so we go because she's like oh god you called my bluff now i have to go uh and we went and we were looking at a few different cats but lucy was actually the only cat we spent time with because what happened was we were talking to the volunteer the volunteer was a little hesitant because we didn't even think about it, but it was the first week of October. And as a shelter in New York, they don't like adopting out black cats in October at all to mm. keep them safe. Sure. 
which makes perfect sense, right? And mm -hmm. it just happened that two of the three cats we were interested in were black cats. She was a little cautious, mm -hmm. but we asked first to see Lucy because it was like her, a one-year-old black cat and then like a three-year-old, right? So we're like, let's start with Lucy. And it was chaos at the shelter. I'm talking about a woman got into a screaming match with one of the like volunteers. It was entirely that woman's fault. And I don't know why she did that in front of her child, but sure. whatever. Um, and like just the poor volunteers were totally stressed out, right? Um, and then, but so our volunteer forgot us in the room with Lucy. Mm. And She'd actually never, we, they were like, we don't know how she's going to react. She actually hasn't been brought in yet. Cause she's not only a black cat, but an older black cat. Right. So pe even though she was super sweet, people weren't really looking at her. Mm -hmm. And we just ended up spending over an hour and a half in the room with this cat because my, and the volunteer rushes in partway through and is like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, blah, blah, blah. And I'm literally sitting on the floor with like Lucy sniffing at me. And my wife is like with her and like, this cat was like exploring the room kind of but mostly like sitting like adjacent to us and we I just look up and I remember us both going we're fine and she went really <laughs> yeah we're good as I'm like petting my cat you know just like this we've imprinted on the cat the cat has imprinted on us and she's like okay so are you really okay I'm just, I've got some other paperwork to finish and we're like yeah go ahead you don't want to see it. we're good like we just all fell in love and uh, so we took her home the next day. Um, and you know, the ups and downs, you know, shelter, you know, sh like having a shelter flu when she got here and having to deal with that, you know, but like, she was fine. Found out in the last two days of her freaking penicillin that the answer was to mix it with tuna like juice, which I wish we had noticed because there's nothing more stressful than hoping a cat acclimates to your house and having to, to like, force them to drink penicillin uh -huh. for the first week of them being in your house because it was like I don't want her to associate me with this thing that like stresses her out because like mm -hmm. she's the sort of cat that like she doesn't like being carried but she, like she'll give you like five ten minutes and then be like okay I'm done like she won't attack you but like we just got super fortunate that she's the most chill like she goes maybe batshit for like five minutes of parkour a day and then like <laughs> is just chill like I spend a lot of my day on my, you know, recliner since like, you know, we stay inside and she usually just like curls up at my feet, you know, at her box, uh, waited for me to be done, you know, and then jumped into bed with us that night. Um, she's, she's perfect. She's also a gremlin. Her like, the thing is now she's gotten so stubborn about the armchair that she won't move. So mm -hmm. for half the day I basically sit on her just like my back on her and like she will then stubbornly stay there and occasionally squawk quietly mm. um until she finally caves and goes somewhere else but at this point she she stopped moving from the the chair she just sits with me on top of her um because she because we're just in a war now we're just in a silent cold war of neither of us will give up the armchair um <laughs> Maybe, you know, like I, I had cats growing up. I had a dog. Um, well, RIP Ozzy. He passed away a couple of years ago. He's a miniature schnauzer that I like absolutely adored, um, which he was named after um, Oz from Buffy. But it was a trick because my mom thought I named the miniature schnauzer Oz after Wizard of Oz. Um, 
because when I said Xander, she said, absolutely not, because she realized that was a Buffy name and she rejected. She was like, absolutely not. No Buffy names. And then a year later, I explained to her that Oz was named after the werewolf on Buffy. And she was she was just like curses fooled again. Um, Lucy came with her name, Lucinda, which was the name that the shelter gave her. And she's such an older black cat that you're like, that's her name. That's that's who she is. She is Lucy. Uh, and uh, she is currently, I'm going to have to fight her the second we stop recording because she took my seat again. Every time I get up, she takes my seat. It's a fight. It's fine. <laughs> uh, and the war continues. <laughs> oh, all the time. And the thing is, it's funny because she's not actually, like, even if she tries to, like, swipe at me or take a nip, it's none of it is is hard. Like, she's very very gentle uh she used to do this thing where if she wanted attention while sitting in the back of my chair she would slowly dramatically like you could literally watch her do it open her mouth and then just like ah, like attach to her your shoulder but like not painfully at all anytime she like scratches you or anything it's by accident she takes a swipe at you it's because like she knows the sign of us getting ready to like pack up and leave for the day like so if i'm starting to put on my shoes or anything she will just like grab hold of your pants and be like, don't leave. She hates it. Um, or if I'm doing too much rearranging and cleaning, but like, even if I sit on her, she doesn't take a swipe unless I'm like really shoving her out the chair. She just makes these really quiet epping noises. Um, and like, just so fortunate that like, we fell in love with this cat immediately and she's been like the sweetest thing on the planet. Um, We've considered maybe eventually getting another cat, but uh, her being older, like she's like 10 now, like I don't necessarily, especially since we're still in a one bedroom, like I don't want to, you know, fuck with her vibe, like getting a younger cat, like that can really kind of change her, her, her energy, you know, and it took a while for like, she was always kind of like chill and like would lay next to you, but it took her a long time to like sit on your lap or like, cause I had really like, I had cats who were like kittens and stuff. So like they would climb all over you. Um, and it took her actually a couple of years to feel comfortable. Just like now she just comes over and sits in my lap, you know? Um, but you know, I don't want to take that comfort away from her. Um, especially since, the shelter suspected, uh, they found her in like a building. So they think that she got out while a family was moving. Um, and like, she just wasn't like spayed or chipped. So they just don't know what happened, but she was in pretty good health, you know, like, so we feel like she was probably comfortable in the house because, you know, she had had a family before and I'm not into, you know, upsetting her at all. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, she she is the center of me and my wife's world just um, and, you know, the best ending to this is within a month of having Lucy. My wife had watched all of Jackson Galaxy's cat show, all eight seasons, became obsessed with it to the point that when he had a signing at the Strand, she got the special ticket to meet him so that she could show him pictures of our cat um, and became a giant cat person just like <laughs> she's just loves cats now all cats are the cutest thing ever and before she was just really would like be like i don't get them they're so rude and if they're, they're just mean i was like no their body language is just the opposite of a dog once you know that it's they're fine they're all sweethearts um every single one even the mean ones it's our fault 
if if they're mean it's probably our fault um but like so she became a giant cat person and i'm like i told you so i knew you would love it <laughs> I, I i gotta i gotta say for the listener uh as danny was was telling us uh about their cat uh matt was doing so much vigorous nodding <laughs> yeah i mean the, i i never had a pet growing up and the minute i met my wife she introduced me to felix her big orange tabby and once i had gotten acclimated to him i was like oh he's a good boy and now now here's the, the, the oh that, that oh this is gosh. what she does when i when we record she eventually just curls up and she a looks like my first me. cat yeah, she, that, i had a i had a growing up i had two cats um, and that uh and she actually looks like uh I, it was ali and andy and she looks like Allie, uh, we had to get rid of Allie because even though like her hair never grew long, she was like, you know, so classified as a, a long haired cat because her hair was really thick. And I was allergic to cats as a kid. I'm not allergic anymore. And she loved sleeping on my face. Oh, so yeah. I frequently would wake up and be like, I have something that is like a pink eye. Um, uh, but, you know, like, and so we just, and also my sister is three years younger than me and didn't know how to deal with cats. So it was very playful and with the way you would with a dog. So then cat, the young cats tried to play back like she was a cat. And so my sister wouldn't turn corners in the house for fear of the cats jumping at her because she didn't understand that they were playing. Uh, have you ever read uh, uh, Junji Ito's Cat Diary? No. So, uh, Matt, I feel like you would really love it in particular. It's great because it's actually a comedy, but he uses his horror style. Uh, and it is a tale about how uh, him not just moving in with uh, with his lady, but also her cats um, and the story of falling in love with the cats while they are freaking terrifying to him. Um, oh, 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 and it's it's so good and it's so cute and it's great because he uses he draws the cats with, you know, the, that like really like heavy, like eye bag darkness that he uses for oh, people sure. in horror he does all of that with the cats and also with himself like he draws himself almost horror but like but like one of the best uh set of panels is he draws himself almost full horror monster but while talking like baby talk to the cat and how like it must look utterly terrifying as like his face is distorting as he's like holding the cats and the cats are just staring up like what is happening yeah, yeah. Um, and it's it's just so good. Um, yeah, that little ball of fluff is Miss Elizabeth, but she's Bass. We adopted her as Miss Elizabeth, but it was like we kept trying different variations of Elizabeth, and finally Bass. She reacted, so now she's Queen Bass. I love that. And, and like... down and downstairs right now by my wife, I'm sure is is Mr. Cal. He's he, he's a new addition. Bess is 14 and Cal is 15. And we've had Cal for a year because he was the, the, he, the shelter put Cal up on their Instagram as unadoptable because he was 15 years old. Every time kidney. I see that, I'm just like, I, I have to, we actually had to institute a rule in which uh, my wife, I had to, if I told her to stop, to, she was not allowed to keep showing me shelter pictures mm. and she was like oh I'm sorry does it make you upset and I was like the thing is I want 
to adopt the cats. The issues that we're having now is not that I don't want another cat. It's that I desperately want another cat, but I know that we don't have the setup for it. Um, and that's, you know, like, so like, I oh. can't look at any more pictures of cats that I want to adopt because it's driving me crazy. Um, no. I mean, fortunately, we've got a nice size house in the Philly suburbs. So we had the room yeah. to, for Cal to live in the dining room with, you know, a gate for the first couple mm-hmm. of months. Well, I mean, they, they don't they, they don't snuggle or anything, but they tolerate each other currently. Yeah. And finally, Bess, who is ha- I mean, Cal is a big boy and Bess is real little like but Bess is the alpha like she's a big yeah. old bully. And finally, though, like when occasionally she doesn't do it, but occasionally she'll walk by him and she'll hiss. And now Cal is finally hissing back. Like, because mm. Cal uh, has had enough of yeah. this nonsense. And let me just put it this way I'll give you, this is the Cal voice. Boom, 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 boom. Hi, I'm Cal. I'm a good boy. He's, he's this big, lumbering, sort of sweet dope. And Bess was also not terribly great, but she's small and she's sleek and she she thinks she's tougher than she is. But Cal is just he's this big ball of love. And he was he's 15 years old and he has kidney disease. So the shelter is just like nobody's going to want to adopt. There's all my wife was just like, I want I, I want to get him. And it was like, well, you're very difficult to shop for. And usually you do. <laughs> trips for you know your christmas present like i you know museum tickets or it's like we can't do that this year because you know pandemic so if you really want to get the cat and so yes like okay cat for christmas and uh, within like two days i was as in love with him as she was because he's just so big and he's named k-a-l as in you know cal and that was the name he came with and it was like Okay. You're like, uh, yeah, I guess. That's uh, yeah. Lucy came with Lucy, but uh, we know that she knows her name because her ears prick when she hears it. She just doesn't give a good goddamn. <laughs> She's just like one of those cats that like sh- they you see the physical response and you see the patterns of they respond specifically to their name. They, mm-hmm. you know, like to when you say certain things and like she will respond kind of tonally correct when you speak to her. Like uh, the most heartbreaking thing she does is if we go to bed off schedule, either way too late or too early uh, from the other hallway, which is only a few feet away, we suddenly hear a, but like a question mark at the end because she does, she's like, where, what's happening? Where the fuck are you guys? And I'm like, every night you come into this room. I don't understand why tonight you are confused just because we went to bed early. You don't, you can still come in here. Um, but yeah, she thinks, uh, she thinks very highly of herself, of her, herself, <laughs> our cat. Um, so our new thing, it, but like also sometimes she's just a dumb cat. So our favorite thing now is just every time she's like being really like hoity about something that is really dumb. We're just like, my wife was just like, she has the brain the size of a walnut. And so we're just like, it's a walnut. Look at this dumb walnut. She's so <laughs> wonderful. Look at this dumb walnut. Um, and it's great animals like they're just you treat them right and they're so sweet you know like uh, my friend Shelly who introduced me to uh, comics again as an adult uh, actually works for um, a reptile rescue um, you know and so when I was really rough off during uh, COVID uh, she was just sent because uh, they had to like move all the uh, 
all the animals and she would just send me pictures of like the big snakes and turtles like and everything just to like uh brighten my day and I'm just like I just and like would tell me stories about you know like how you know these rescue like giant like snakes and everything or like the huge turtles were like just so sweet right because you treat them decently you take care of them you give them enough space you know and they treat you well um you know and for the most part even if it's difficult animals have a really big capacity for learning to trust again after being hurt um and I just love you know I feel this way always but like I love being able to to help either animal or person be a little bit closer to comfortable, you know, you know, so like, that was one of the reasons that I was very, aside from being like, look now with your first cat, get one that's over a year and a half old so that we don't have to litter train them. Trust me, please trust me. Our house is too small and we are book nerds. Let's get an older cat, uh, you know, but like also just, I really wanted an older cat because who knows if anyone's gonna gonna grab them no matter how are, you know? Um, and it feels nice to just be like loved by a cat. <laughs> like, because people have such weird ideas on how cats behave, it feels really cool and successful and good to be loved by a cat. It's like you've broken the code. Um, you know, it's not actually that complicated. It's it's don't grab them. Let them come to you. They'll probably like you. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it feels good. Um, God, I'm as nerdy about my cat as I am about people reading my books. It's so I'm such a dork. It's fine. I like being enthusiastic. And I spent a lot of time when I was younger uh, feeling like I shouldn't be as enthusiastic about everything that I enjoy uh, especially since people would view me as much younger because I was optimistic and enthusiastic but at this point I'm kind of like screw it um, I love being enthusiastic I love hearing you talk about your animals you know like it's encouraging that feels good you are in the right place for that <laughs> level of enthusiasm always absolutely uh, this has been uh, a joy uh, but uh, sadly, all good things, uh, yes. etc. Final question, Danny. Uh, how can people follow you online and keep up with uh, uh, Luda Room and Transformer Shattered Glass and Champions and, and everything else that you have going on? Uh, so, uh, best way to find me is probably on Twitter, where I am there too much. Um, and then I'm a bit on Instagram, and I'm going to get back to that soon. Um, uh, both places, I am Weredogs, W-E-R-E-D-A-W-G-Z, because uh, I have a brand and it's werewolves. Um, of note in particular, uh, I think we're like a month off or so of uh, me and Greg Pak's uh, Stranger Things graphic novel coming out. So that should be fun. Um, and then uh, it'll be about another year, but uh, also announced I've got a middle grade scholastic book uh, a graphic novel uh, that I'm working on, which is uh, super fun and exciting with uh, Seth Smith, um, which is basically like D&D world was real, but like make it about like black kids in New York, but also 
you know, there are elves and goblins and everything. Um, so trying to expand the kind of work that I'm doing uh, in the same way that I'm, you know, kind of doing more messy adult stuff in comics, uh, trying to do uh, some, some younger stuff as well, because I feel like a lot, but like, you know, trying my hand at some middle grade stuff is super fun as well. Awesome. Danny, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. This was super fun. And any place I get to talk about my cat is the best place. <laughs> That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF, meaning you can find this podcast along with our sister podcast, Battle of the Atom and Chris's on Infinite Earths, and a ton of great comics criticism at comicsxf.com. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at comicsxf.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at patreon.com slash WMQcomics, where a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a customized bonus reading column written by Matt Lazowitz, built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. A $2 donation gets you a free random comic in the mail from my collection. A $3 donation gets you a slot in the Comics XF staff picks, and a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Match Club podcast, Robert Secundus from Toxman at ComicsXF.com, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's Spider-Woman series, and Asimov Fangirl, a.k.a. the Loyalist Content Consumer. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQComics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. And until next week, remember, Batman has a plan for everything. He even has a plan for you, my child. W-N-Q-A.